If you've got your Bibles with you tonight, uh, you can turn or open to uh, John chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series in John's uh, Gospel. We started it a couple of weeks ago. And tonight we'll be looking from in chapter 1 from verse 6 onwards. So, so last week we, we looked at kind of John's kind of epilogue, his kind of introduction to his Gospel, which is a very dense uh, and thick um, portion of Scripture, so meaty. Um, Last week we looked at John 1 to 1, uh, verse 1 to 5, and tonight we'll be going from, uh, from verse 19. Now if you want to look at the, or think about the, the middle section that, we've, that, I, that I've missed out, um, this morning's service, Steve covered some of that, so you can listen online for some of that. So, I don't know if anybody uh, remembers when they were a kid, or, or doing this with your kids, but reading the, the Where's Wally books that you often get, and you can get like, different versions where, where, you, where you open it up and you see such a crowded uh, picture, whether it's um, the, the pyramids of, of, uh, of Egypt, or whether it's by you know, uh, Paris with the Eiffel Tower, and you see like, loads and loads of little people and characters around, and you have to like, work out and spot where Wally is. You know? And, and it's, it takes ages to see it, and I look forward to doing it with my boys as well. Uh, and it takes ages to find him, and you're like, where's Wally? And then eventually you find him, and then once you've found him, you can't unfind him, can you? You can't, you can't unsee him. You know where he is, and every, every page is like, oh, turn to the next page. Oh, yeah, he's there. I, can, I know where he is. Well, our faith can be a little bit like that sometimes, is that it could become so crowded and distracted with things in life. You know, both good things and bad things. Maybe your, your faith is getting distracted or crowded with, with pain and with suffering. And, and it's, it's, it's causing the light of the gospel to grow dimmer and dimmer in your life. All the distractions or the busyness of life that you're running around like a headless chicken trying to cope with a, a, a full-time job and, and raising kids and, uh, and doing stuff at church and having a social life and doing all of these other things can, be, can get so crowded and so busy and the light of the gospel and the significance of Jesus Christ in our lives can become smaller and smaller. And then we can look at our lives and it can look like a Where's Wally page. And you might ask, where is Jesus in my life? Because I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of stuff and I'm involved in a lot of different things. But where is Jesus? And the thing is, when we look at John chapter 1, John, uh, Jesus sorry, steps onto the scene... Um, so we look at the word becoming flesh. Jesus steps onto the scene in the message version, as Steve read out this morning. It says that he came into the neighborhood. Um, but then it's not nothing at all like a where's Wally page. And that straight from day one, Jesus becomes the center of attention. And we see throughout this passage that we're going to look at tonight, we see different characters, different people throughout history um, each, each in their own individual lives, each in their own individual roles, getting on with life, Jesus steps onto the scene and he suddenly becomes the center of attention. And that's what I want to kind of draw out tonight, that Jesus also in our lives needs to be the center of attention. So if you're not all there already, we'll look at uh, chapter 1. What I'm going to do, the words aren't going to be on the screen tonight because we've got um, a lot to get through tonight. So I'm just going to read um, from, from the passage. But you can just think about it in your head and think about the images uh, and the scenarios that are before us. So I'll just read from here. So it says in verse 19, Now this was John's testimony, which is John the Baptist, when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? 
John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John replied, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of of the sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. So my first point tonight is from, from that passage is that it's not about us and it's not about you. It's not about us and it's not about you. And what we can see from this passage is that John's humility just shines through his actions and through his words. He is such a, such a humble and lowly guy in his thought life, but also in his words and actions. Just to kind of summarize a little bit of those points. So firstly, it says that he did not fail to confess that I am not the Christ, that people were coming to him. And then just earlier in John, John's Gospel, John chapter one, it says that, that John came as a witness to the light, that he was sort of this light who was a witness of a greater light. So John had a following. He was a pretty important guy. He came as Christ's kind of uh, like a you know, way maker um, to prepare the way for him. He had an important ministry, but yet he did not fail to confess, I am not the Christ. You see, he could have had quite a big following, but yet he pushed that aside and he was willing to let go of that to make way for Jesus. You know, he could have started the Bethany Baptist megachurch. You know, he could have had, you know, thousands of people in attendance at his church, had a six-figure salary, you know, written a few books, spoken at conferences all over the known world, but yet he pushed all of that aside to make a way for Jesus and said, no, I am not the Christ. I am not the person that you want to end up following. Like, I'll do for now because I'm showing you the way, but the book doesn't stop with me. I am not the Christ. When asked, what do you say about yourself, he simply quoted Isaiah the prophet. He wouldn't even use his own words or or his own thoughts to describe his ministry. He would only use the word of God. So he says, I am just a voice calling in the desert, preparing the way. He just quoted Isaiah the prophet. He's not not, uh, commending himself. He's not boasting about himself. He's just saying, okay, I just want to serve, and God's uh, giving me this service to prepare the way. He then even says that he is unworthy to even untie Jesus's sandals. Now that you might think, well, surely anybody can untie someone's sandals. But then if you think about who Christ really is, John said that because he had an understanding of who Christ really was. He had an understanding of something of the majesty and the deity of Christ. When you think about Christ in that way, do you really um, have the worthiness to untie his sandals? Think about Jesus sat on his throne in heaven. Do you, have, do you have the worthiness to approach him and even to do the lowliest act of service for him? Well, the answer is no, and John understood something of that. And then in verse 29, it says that he points his, he, he points his followers towards Jesus. He says, look, the Lamb of God. So John is there teaching. He's there doing his work, doing his ministry, baptizing people, teaching people about the kingdom of God. He sees Jesus approach on the scene, and he tells everyone, look, look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This guy is not trying to keep a crowd. He's not trying to, to keep his own followers. He's willing to say, no, everyone, come on, look where I'm looking. Look at Jesus. He's not bothered about his own reputation. And then in verse 30, it says that 
Jesus has surpassed him and that his role was simply to reveal Jesus to Israel. You know, John's whole ministry was simply just to prepare the way and point people to Jesus. His whole ministry was for that purpose and he knew that and he loved that and he accepted that. He didn't want anything more. I mean, this guy is just dripping in humility. He's just dripping in it. He's so humble, it's crazy. It's like that, fil- it's like that scene off the film, The King and I, you know, where, uh, where, where nobody can be higher than the king. Uh, and so that, that, so that woman is with the king and then, you know, so the king kind of like steps down from his, his throne and then she stood there and then the king like crouches down. So, so she crouches down and the king like squats down on the floor. So then she squats down on the floor because she doesn't want to be any higher than the king or you're not meant to be. It's like that. John has just been so humble and totally lower him, lowering himself, making himself lesser and lesser for the glory of God, for the prominence of Christ. Yet the thing is, is that later on, Jesus would say that there was none greater than John the Baptist. That there was none greater. He says that of all the people that have ever lived, of all, the, of, all the, of all the men and women that have been born, there is none greater than John the Baptist. So think, think about Abraham. Think about David. Think about Moses. Think about all of the patriarchs in the Old Testament. Think about all of the, the people of faith. And yet Jesus would say there was none greater. Why? Because his whole ministry, his whole life was simply just to point people to Jesus. And that was effective. That was what was so great about him. And that's what needs to define us as believers, as Christians. That it's not about us. It's not about our ministry. It's not about this church. It's not about your life or your prominence. It's about Christ. Christ living through you. We need to see that our faith should not be centered on ourselves. You see, what, a lot of the problem today is that a lot of evangelical teaching, and I, I don't want to be, be a basher or, or call anyone out at all, but a lot of evangelical teaching can essentially be a little bit self-centered, and it becomes self-centered teaching, almost like Christian-tinged self-help, which, which is all very good and, and helpful, and it, it's nice to hear, but it, it's not Christ-centered. It becomes self-centered. We end up manipulating and distorting the word of God and twisting it for our own benefits and for our own purposes, to suit our own desires and to suit our own ambitions. You know, we think that God is the great benefactor in the sky who's interested in, in our purpose or our destiny um, or, you know, the, the journey that he has for us. And all of that is true. You know, God does have a journey for us. God does have gifts uh, for us. And God does have a, have, a, have a plan to walk through in life. But that is not the main thing. The main thing is his glory. And we just take a little part of that. And the problem is, quite frankly, we love it. We love teaching like that because it's so self-centered and because because we love ourselves. So we love it when it's all about ourselves and it's not just about him. And instead of mucking in with kind of church life or responding to need, you know, we stand on the sidelines wondering where is like the perfect role for us to fit and to uh, serve God in. I don't know if anyone's seen the film uh, Hacksaw Ridge. So it's a World War II film. I'll play the trailer for you one night, but maybe not tonight. But it's, it's a fantastic film, and basically it's about a guy who is, I can't remember the, the term, but he basically would refuse to kill anybody, so he, he would refuse to carry a weapon uh, during the war. Um, and he would basically go as a medic in the army, and he was bullied, and he was treated really harshly. But and he, and he ends up going to serve um, kind of near Japan uh, during World War II, 
as, um, as a medic in the army. And what he does is that the, the, his platoon kind of makes an advance on, on a place called Hacksaw Ridge, which is a big, big cliff that, they, that the soldiers have to climb up and then to take the territory um, off the Japanese during the war. Um, and that now his platoon was hit really hard, and he spent night and day just carrying people back and forth from the battle to, to camps that were injured. And he, and he saved loads and loads of lives. It, it, the guy was an absolute hero, and he's called his Desmond Doss. And, uh, you know, and, and the film is about him. It's based on true events. He was a real guy uh, who lived in the real war. Uh, and he was a perfect, he was, he was a hero. But the thing is, Imagine if, imagine if it was, if it was a, little, a little bit different. Imagine if Desmond Doss, instead of just saying, it's not about me, and I'm just going to go and save people and bring them back to base and rescue their lives. What if he was a little bit like some of us can be like and some, some of what I can be like as well, is, is be self-centered and think about and desire that perfect role that God has got for me. You know, as Hegan might be thinking, he could say, oh, well, I could carry the wounded back to base but I might get blood on my, on my uniform. <laughs> it's new. <laughs> I got it just last week, and I don't want to ruin it. So I don't think that's God's perfect role for me, for, for me to do that during this battle. You know, or I suppose I could take more ammo to, 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 to the soldiers over there, um, but I kind of think it's a bit beneath my, my pay grade. You know, it's, it's, that's more for the privates. You know, like I'm, I've been serving a while, and I think I'll, I think I'll let someone else do that. You know, or I could help the squad hold, hold that position over there, but I haven't actually really been trained for that yet, you know. You know, you haven't really trained me for, for all this important work, and so I'll, I'll leave that one as well. Or, oh, you want me to take the night watch? Well, I've got to get up early tomorrow morning, actually. I've got somewhere to be tomorrow morning, so I'll pass on the night watch, yeah. And that would be crazy if someone had, like, such a self-centered attitude in a battlefield during a war. You know, you just got to muck in and do what you can. But the thing is, guys, we often find ourselves in the midst of a spiritual battle, and yet we can, we can have very similar attitudes, can't we? Is that because we, have a, we can generate a self-centered faith, because we think it's, it's about us. We generate a self-centered faith, and it becomes about our role, and it becomes about our use, and, and our preferences, and our desire, and our ambitions, and about how God is blessing us and using us in those scenarios, instead of just being willing to serve and support what God is doing. You know, the reality is, is that people are going through suffering, people are going through pain, that people's faiths are hanging by a thread, people's marriages are rocky, people's relationships are, are breaking down, and that's even just within the church. And that's, so we don't want to be people that are standing on the sidelines, but that we, we want to be people, be, be people that are investing in each other, being willing to serve, being willing to sacrifice, and being willing to get mucky in people's lives. Because it's not about us. You know, when I moved out um, of house when I, was, when I was 18, I went to go and do like a gap year in, my, in a church in Bradford. And it was, it was a great and fantastic time. One thing that I did was that uh, I wrote in big letters on a sheet, sheet of paper and I stuck it to my wall in the bedroom. And on it I wrote, my life is not about me. My life is not about me. And, and it kind of defined my attitude for those couple of years because I was just committed to serve and support and love as much as I could. You know, and, and your thought might be that, well, what if you burnt out, Josh? Well, I made sure I didn't burn out, but my, I was just committed to serve and support as much as I could. And those words just kept going round and round my life. You know what? I want you guys to repeat it after me. So repeat after me. My life is not about me. My life is not about me. 
Just keep those words going round your mouth, round your mind. That was, what, that was what John the Baptist's attitude was. My life is not about me. It's about Christ. It's about his glory. It's about his purpose. And we guys, as Hope Church, we need to have that same attitude as we think about mission. Okay, we'll keep going reading through uh, John's uh, gospel in chapter 1 then. We'll look at verse 30, uh, 29. Sorry. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who, who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed in Israel. And we'll skip over to verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them and, follow, and following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, who is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated as Peter. Okay, second point is be an Andrew. Be an Andrew. So it says that the first thing that uh, Andrew did when he, when he found Jesus, the first thing that he did was he went and got Peter. He went and told him, we have found Jesus. We have found the Messiah. Come and see. One of the first things he did. And then we'll also see in a minute that Philip also does the same thing. That Jesus approaches Philip and Philip, one of the first things he does, he goes and gets Nathaniel. He goes and says, Nathaniel, we've found Jesus. Come and see. You know, our great commission from Jesus is simply to point people to Jesus and to continue doing that throughout someone's journey, to go to other people, to go to other communities and to say, look at the Lamb of God. We found Jesus. You need to find him also. That is pretty much our great commission. You know, we are meant to be like living signposts which are pointing people to Jesus, that our life, that the message that we speak and the way that we live is continually pointing to him. Living signposts. The problem is, is that often we're not, we're not very effective at doing that, are we? Is that often we can end up selfishly enjoying the Christian life too much that we just end up forgetting or not bothering about telling people about Jesus. And so we end up becoming secret Christians in the workplace or secret Christians amongst family members. And we, and we don't really talk about Jesus. It doesn't really come out that much because we're kind of keeping it to ourselves and we're not all that bothered or there isn't much impetus to tell people about Jesus. Or that we're meant to be like living signposts for Jesus, but actually we're not very shiny, uh, and often our lives can be pointing in the wrong direction, can't they? <laughs> I don't know if any of you have been on a journey, and that you've spotted a road sign, and you followed it, and then it's just gone to nowhere, and you kind of wonder, like, was it pointing in the wrong direction? Maybe someone like flipped it and turned it upside down for a joke. Now, I shared this story uh, a while ago in the morning service, but due to a technical glitch, I couldn't show you a picture, which was quite important to the story. So I'm going to share it again. 
unashamedly. Okay, so a, a while ago, uh, I was driving with my mates down the, uh, down the M6, and this is, this is uh, going down the M6, uh, just approaching Lancaster. And now what you might see, or what you, what you might have noticed a few months ago, is that as you're driving down the M6, uh, you'll see that there's this brown sign on the, on the left-hand side, uh, one of which is nice and clean and new, because that's uh, put there for the bypass, which was put in. Uh, and one of them is quite old and dirty and almost unreadable, which is the sign for Lancaster, the, the brown historic city sign for Lancaster. Um, now, coming back, going back and work to every other day, um, I got sick of seeing this sign. It was just filthy. It was just, it's covered in grime. It's covered in dirt. It's hardly readable. And anybody seeing that sign for the first time would be like, Lancaster, no chance I'm going there. You know, it's just grotesque. Anyway, so I got so tired of doing, seeing this, so um, I didn't take a picture out of the car, but I went onto Google Maps and I, I took this picture, and I emailed it to Lancaster City Council, Lancashire County Council, and Cat Smith, our MP. Um, hoping that something would happen. Anyway, a few weeks later, I got an email back from Cat Smith saying that, um, that Highways England have taken notice of the sign, they've been up and they've cleaned it, um, and then she included the picture. And if we get that on the screen, that'd be great, guys. If you flick onto the next picture, Jason. Um, there we go. So she, she even took a picture of it, uh, not she personally, but someone else took a picture of the sign and said, oh, it's clean, by the way. And she, uh, she said this, uh, if I can find it, it says, Dear Josh, hopefully you've noticed already, but I just wanted to let you know that Highways England confirmed the sign was cleaned a couple of weeks ago. Thanks for highlighting this, and I am pleased that we now have a sign more worthy of a city like Lancaster. Yours sincerely, Cat Smith. So, um, yeah, there we go. That's my contribution to the community. <laughs> but our lives can be a, little, be a little bit like that sign, can't they? That we're meant to be shiny, that we're meant to be pointing to Christ, but actually, they actually can not be that attractive. They can actually not be that shiny, can't they? And that often we, we find it hard. We find it hard to share our faith. We have to find it hard amidst our fear and insecurities and we'd much rather someone else do the work. You know, we'd much rather else just, just uh, have people come to church, hear the gospel and become Christians without us being a part of it because it's, it's difficult and messy and, and, and awkward to get involved in that situation. But it's important and that God is using us all to reach um, our friends and neighbours. Just an illustration of the power that we all have to spread the gospel. Does anybody know how many people there are in the UK? Random guess. 60 million, yeah, about that. 60 million, 66 million, okay. Now, imagine this. Imagine if we, churches around Lancaster, sorry, churches around England, decided that we're going to evangelise the whole nation and we put on evangelistic events every single week and that we saw a thousand people coming to faith every single week. Wouldn't that be amazing? A thousand people every week coming to faith. Okay, anybody that's, that, 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 that's got a clever mind can work out how long it would take for 66 million people to become Christians at a thousand a week rate, okay? Any ideas? It would take a very long time, okay? It would take, it would take over a thousand years, okay? That's, that's how long it would take. 60, 60 million divided by a thousand is 60,000 weeks. 60,000 weeks is over a thousand years. So that's how long it would take. That if we did an evangelistic event every weekend and a thousand people came to faith, it would take over a thousand years for, for the whole nation to be, to be saved. Okay, that's A. Now B. Imagine if that every Christian committed to, to bringing another person to Jesus Christ every year and that each new convert did the same thing just, just once a year. That's a reasonable, achievable target. One person 
per year and every new person committed to doing the same thing. Do you know how long it would take to reach the whole nation? 26 years. 26 years. That's two to the power of 26. Christine, for the maths teacher, two to the power of 26. Okay? A thousand years and 26 years when we are all involved in doing the ministry. Yeah? When we are all reaching our friends, reaching our family, reaching our neighbors with the message of Christ. So it's not a big event. It's not, it's, not, it's not the Billy Graham idea, although Billy Graham was, was an amazing and a godly man and his ministry was amazing. It's all of us doing ministry. That is the power of the church with the gospel. And that's exactly why we have these bookmarks, book, bookmarks printed. And I've scattered these around your chairs tonight. It says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And on the back it says, for these four people I commit to, pray, connect, share, invite, and disciple. I challenge you to take that away tonight, to write down four names of that people that this year you want to pray with, you want to connect with, you want to spend time with, you just want to love and to share the love of grace. Uh, sh- sh- sorry, share the grace of Christ with. That's the power of the gospel. Okay, final passage, and then we'll uh, get to the end. Verse 43. It says, The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite, in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Okay, point three is preach the gospel to yourself. Now, it's not explicit in the text, but what it, what it kind of looks like in the image that it kind of creates in your mind is that Nathaniel is sat underneath the fig tree, that he's reading the scriptures, he's got his Bible open, he's praying, and he's thinking, and he's wondering about when the Messiah will come. And we, we can get that from because he and Philip seem to be familiar with the teachings of the law and the teachings of the prophets and their predictions of, of Christ. You know, Philip kind of says that. And also that Jesus says that here is a true Israelite talking about Nathaniel. He says, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Now, for Jesus to say that, for Jesus to say, here is a true Israelite, thinking of how harshly he thought for Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, would mean that Nathaniel would have had to have um, such a faithful heart, a heart of faith that was eagerly anticipating the coming of the Messiah. Yeah, a true Israelite is someone of faith, not necessarily blood, but someone of faith who's looking forward to the Messiah. You know, we too need to be people of faith and have our minds fixed on Jesus. And we do that by pointing ourselves to Jesus and reminding ourselves about the gospel. Put simply, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. You know, the problem is, is that life can get really hard sometimes, can't it? Life can get very distracted. And like that Where's Wally picture, it can get very fuzzy. It can get very distracted. It can get very hard to see what our priorities are in life and to spot Jesus 
out in there and to keep him central, that can get really hard. And that's why we need to keep reminding ourselves of the gospel, keep reminding ourselves of the work of Christ. You know, the author of that phrase, preach the gospel to yourself, I think Jerry Bridges um, kind of used it a lot. Uh, And he quotes it, or he uses it in his book, and he says this, he says, the gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it is the only essential message in all of history. Yet we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experiencing the, living, uh, the joy of living it. Christians are not instructed in the gospel and because they do not fully understand the riches and the glory of the gospel, they cannot preach it to themselves nor live it uh, uh, in their daily lives. And what he talks about is the idea of preaching the gospel to yourselves. Now, you might hear that and you might think, well, Josh, isn't that like preaching to the converted? I mean, I know what the gospel is, but it's not, it's not that case whatsoever. Is that everything, we've got to realize that everything within us, like the sin within us uh, and the sin in this world and, and everything around us wants us to, to deny Christ and live for our own means and, and to kind of uh, to, to fight back against that storm and, and distraction that's going on around us. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves. And keep reminding us of what's important. Keep reminding us of what's central. And keep Jesus at the center. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves even daily. We need to do it in our marriages. We need to do it with our kids. We need to do it with our friends and family. And keep Jesus at the center. You know, a good way of doing this is that when you're reading scripture, well, that, that's the first good thing. Read scripture, that's, that, that's, that's, that's a good first step. But when you're reading scripture, to think and to, and to analyze and to think, okay, what does this do, have to do about Jesus? How does this passage point to Jesus? Maybe you're reading David and Goliath. You might think, okay, how does this passage point to Jesus? Well, it's like an illustration. David beats Goliath. And that's like an illustration of how Jesus beats uh, Satan on the cross or how he beats sin and death on the cross. That's an, it's an illustration. Or you can ask, how does this passage fit into the wider uh, context of the gospel? How does this fit into the gospel story? So you might be thinking, you're reading a passage in the Bible and it might be really weird and wacky and you might see some or, or read about some people doing some like, horrendous things to each other but then you can see, okay, well actually that's, that, that's an image of, of the blackness of sin. Yet, what hope that we have that Jesus came to restore that and to and to fix that. So it's about looking in your scripture and thinking, okay, how does this fit into the gospel story? Because Jesus is that main thread that's running throughout it all. So we need to continually point ourselves to Jesus. Simon, let's have the, the band up. I'll be finishing in a in a second. And don't ever become tired or weary weary of doing that. You know, we shouldn't ever become tired of talking about or living the gospel, but understanding it in a greater sense, in a, in a, in a greater truth, and living it out every day uh, throughout all that we do. So in all that we're doing, we're just basically saying, look, the Lamb of God. Just as John the Baptist proclaimed, he said, look, the Lamb of God. We're saying, you know, don't look at us, don't look at our ministry, don't look at our church, don't, don't, don't look at your own self-centered life, look at the Lamb of God, look at Jesus. And we're saying to others who don't know him, we're saying, you know, don't, don't look at your own life. Don't look at this world for your answers and for your solutions. Look at the Lamb of God. And we're even saying to ourselves, even daily, amidst our distractions, amidst our struggles, amidst our failures, we're saying to ourselves, look at the Lamb of God. And you've got to preach the gospel to yourself. You've got to tell yourself to look to Jesus because you will be distracted. 
you will get waylaid. Your, your mind will wonder. You'll, you'll start to focus on other things. You've got to keep yourself centered. Preach the gospel to yourself. Say, look at the Lamb of God. Look at Jesus. Just as David says, why are you downcast, O my soul? You've got to speak to your soul and say, you know, do you not desire Jesus? Do you not desire his grace? Do you not desire his purpose and his truth in your life? Speak to yourself in that. You know, uh, a guy called John Piper, a great preacher, uses this analogy to, to explain this. He says, and, and, I, and I can see that with my own kids, is that when I, when I tell my, my little son Noah, uh, to look at something. Maybe we're in the car or, or I see something in the garden and I say, Noah, look at the cat. Look at the cat in the garden. Do you know what he looks to instead of looking at the cat? He looks to my finger. He looks to my finger. Or, 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 or I'm looking at little baby Samuel. I say, look, look, look at the little doggy. And he looks, he looks at the finger because that's what's moving and that's what's interesting. And I'm like, no, no, look. You know, and I try and, I try and guide him like that and I try and like, look, I try and like, I can, almost like, like I can flick his eyes, like flick you know, over to there. And, and, and John Piper uses that as an analogy of like how our lives can be. It's like that, that we're, we're trying to point to Jesus, but yet so often we can, we can be fixed on the wrong thing. You know, this church is meant to be pointing to Jesus. And so often we can become distracted by even church, can't we? We can get, we can get run down and, and, and distracted and, and tied up with the traditions of church or the way of doing church life or the way that our Christian life has been so far. Or we can, we can get obsessed with a particular preacher or a particular ministry or anything like that. We, we can end up looking at the finger instead of Jesus. And what John says and what, what I'm saying tonight is don't look at the finger. Look at Jesus. Look at the Lamb of God. So let's, let's stand tonight. I'm going to pray for you guys. We're just going to sing.